So today I'd like to continue on this, uh, what's bec- what has become a series. I hadn't thought about this when I started this series, but um, there's a certain progression in the talks. And um, the, uh, the progression of the talks is to describe some of the basic, um, the basic unfolding of the practice of mindfulness and how it ties to the practice of concentration. So I talked about, uh, those of you who weren't here, I talked a little bit about mindfulness and mindfulness practice as understood in our tradition. And then I talked uh, about concentration and some of the ways that concentration practice unfolds and how it relates to mindfulness. And um, today's theme is to talk about insight. Insight is the name we have in our center, the Insight Meditation Center. And it's meant as kind of a translation of vipassana. The Pali word vipassana comes from the word, yes, well, comes from the word pasana, which means to see. And v is, the prefix v um, is sometimes taken to mean different things. Um, it's often used in Pali as an emphatic prefix, just to emphasize something. So, you know, seeing with oomph. Uh, seeing, a cl- or... So it becomes sometimes in English clear seeing, seeing specially in some special way. Um, so uh, special seeing or clear seeing or unique seeing or, or um, and um, um, so it, you know this is what we do. We, we aim for insight in, uh, when we're practicing mindfulness. And insight has to do with seeing, seeing something, so understanding something really deeply. And uh, the, um, there's a, uh, it's, it's a little bit vague exactly what vipassana is supposed to mean, um, besides meaning insight. The, um, it belongs to a kind of a class of what can be called spiritual states of mind or qualities of mind. That, uh, uh, and one of the, part of that class is mindfulness, part of it is insight. And, um, but it also has to do with wisdom. It overlaps with wisdom and, or discernment, to be discerning. So when we start, uh, when mindfulness uh, gears up and mindfulness gets strong, and then mindfulness is coupled with strong concentration as the practice goes along, when you first sit down to meditate and you're new to all this, um, your mind is probably all over the place. Part, a lot of what the practice has to do is reigning in the mind, bringing the mind back and back and back. So the mind is not something that keeps wandering off and therefore being unuseful, but the mind is something that stays put and is therefore useful. In a language that we don't use very much uh, here in the West, uh, maybe in the West, maybe the associations with this kind of language is not favorable, but in the um, teachings of the Buddha, he talks a lot about taming the mind. So you have this wild, uncontrollable mind, and so you're taming the mind. And um, a tamed mind, so the, uh, the contrast that's sometimes given in the discourses is between a wild elephant and a tamed elephant. And when the elephant is tamed, it's really useful. And the example that's given is you can take the tamed elephant and um, like the, the king or the soldiers have these warrior elephants and they can go be taken into battle and there can be all these sounds of battle going around and arrows uh, flying and the, um, and the tame elephant will stay tame, will stay um, disciplined and stay calm in the midst of the battle. So the idea of a tame mind is a mind which will stay disciplined and stay calm, stay balanced no matter what's happening in, in around us. And that kind of mind is said to be a useful mind, a mind that can be used for something. If we start reacting very strongly and the mind's already, already run away before we've run away, then our mind, our presence of mind is not there to kind of deal with the situation in a good, good way. So a big part of the practice of mindfulness begins with learning to um, hold the mind in the present moment, to keep the mind in the present moment, to be here, um, to tame the mind. And then once the mind, uh, we're able to do that and keep the mind in the present moment, then it's a matter of connecting more deeply to this present moment experience. And concentration is a strong, very important part of that, where the mind has a stillness or a steadiness in it um, that it can uh, see very clearly uh, what's here. And the analogy I like to use is that of a, 
of a, you know, a telescope. If you're going to uh, look at some star up in, this, in space or something far away with a big telescope and you're holding it, you're holding it in your hands, it's going to wobble. Uh, so it's kind of hard to you know, hold it still. But you put, you put um, the telescope on a tripod and then it's still and you can kind of focus on something in the distance. So the same thing with a mi- with a mind. If the mind is um, really really stable, then uh, you can see much more penetratingly than if the mind is not so stable. But part of the function of concentration, as I mentioned, I think in the last couple of weeks, is concentration practice also is a cleansing uh, of the that clean- cleanses the mind. It doesn't just uh, simply steady the mind or balance the mind, but it also purifies the mind. And there's something that happens as the mind gets more and more still, more and more steadied, that the forces of agitation, forces of restlessness, distraction in the mind become lessened and lessened. And those forces of agitation and restlessness are often called hindrances and or sometimes called defilements. There's a lot of different different names for different kinds of uh, uh, breath ways of talking about um, kind of the dirt of the mind, what keeps the mind clouded over, what keeps the mind kind of filters on the mind so it can't see very clearly. And part of the process of this concentration, mindfulness and concentration both, is this, it involves this purification practice. And all this stuff gets cleansed from the mind. And if you think of the mind like a telescope again, as a lens, if the lens is not uh, clean and clear, then you can't see very well through it. So you have to kind of clean the dust from it. The, the, so a very important function of concentration practice is this purification practice, to really cleanse what's going on. Another important part of, uh, pure, of concentration practice is um, uh, sooner or later to bring a sense of well-being, um, deep, deep sense of well-being that's, for many people, inc- not comparable to any kind of well-being you can have in ordinary you know, life well-being. Um, no matter what kind of great success or great kind of worldly experience you might have, it doesn't compare with this tremendous sense of well-being and stability that can come from concentration practice. And so, uh, with that kind of sense of well-being, then there can be a willingness sometimes to take a next step, go deeper into the mind, go deeper into the process of letting go. Um, uh, Whereas if you don't have that well-being, it might seem very frightening to let go. It might seem very bland or very uh, kind of nihilistic or something. Um, to go into the uh, deeper kind of challenges a spiritual life has to give. Um, you know, as they talk sometimes about the, the dark night of the soul kind of experiences, there can be very challenging times in any kind of spiritual discipline. And um, it can be kind of dark nights uh, at times. I think any uh, spiritual practice that um, um, warrants the name spiritual uh, should challenge you in some very, very deep way. So, so deeply, it's at times, you feel like the very foundation of your life, the very kind of way in which you understand yourself and the world around you, is being shook up and shaken. Now, it's a lot easier to be shooken up that way or be challenged in that way if you have this kind of sense of well-being, stability and well-being inside that carries you through the difficult times. And another function of concentration practice is to provide that sense of well-being. So when the concentration is strong enough, and as I said, different teachers will emphasize the need for having different levels of concentration. There are teachers um, who teach uh, what's called, um, sometimes called the dry path. And the dry path is the path of only teaching mindfulness or vipassana without doing any kind of concent- emphasis on concentration or cultivating concentration practice. And it's called dry because um, the concent- when you do the concentration path, when you only do that, or primarily do that, it's called the wet path, because uh, it's uh, so full of joy. All the joy is kind of wet. And, um, and vipassana is dry. So then you, no one wants the dry path now, right? You want the wet and dry and brittle. Um, but... Um, uh, so some teachers emphasize just, just doing vipassana without any emphasis on concentration at all. And all the concentration you need will follow in the wake of doing the diligent mindfulness practice. Just staying present, noticing what's happening here in a very diligent way, the mind does get concentrated and you, whatever you, concentration you need will come along. 
Other teachers will say, um, um, no, first you have to do a, a really um, serious phase of practice that's only focusing on concentration practice. And once you have developed a very strong steadiness and stillness of the mind, then you, can, uh, then you switch over to do the vipassana practice, the insight practice. So that's, uh, there's two types. And a third type are teachers who say the two should be integrated all along. You should have both mindfulness and concentration developing both at the same time. But um, in an integrated approach, you're still looking for a very deep level of concentration. But you're not kind of separating the two out, one, one first and then the other one later. But actually there's a way in which they kind of work together. So... Um, 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 so when, when, in some way or other, when mindfulness is coupled with concentration, when there's enough concentration, then the mindfulness begins to reveal things that opens up the path to liberation, opens up the world for us in new ways. And that, so I, sometimes I like the word revelation. Mindfulness involves revelation. Because the idea of revelation, not that someone out there, or some you know, God or something can reveal something to you, you're going to hear voices, but rather that um, the revelation has to do with um, um, it's not something you can make happen. It's not something that you can plan to make happen. But at some point, when the mindfulness concentration is strong enough, um, certain things get sh- uh, shown to you or appear in its own time and place. When it's, own, when it's, when it's ready, or when the practice is ready, then uh, reality starts showing itself in new ways to you that, that um, is not obvious in the ordinary street consciousness. Um, so we talk about insight. Uh, so has, so what, what are the insights that we can see? So what are the things we start discovering as the practice gets deeper? Um, there's a whole range of things that could qualify as insight, uh, things that we see in perhaps anything that we understand for the first time, or understand deeply, it can be called an insight. And so people sit and they have a lot of insights. Here in the uh, post-Freudian psychological West, it's not uncommon for a lot of people to have psychological insights when they meditate. And they start, they, they start understanding themselves, understanding how their psychology works. And there's nothing wrong about that. It's, sometimes it's very freeing and very helpful to see that to realize um, certain patterns of why we do something, to realize, you know, sometimes it has to do with memories from the past pop up, or we see the mind uh, going around and around and around in the same themes over and over again, and we make psychological connections. Oh, because of X, I do Y. Because I want people to like me so much, I am always saying please. Wow, that's an insight. Wow, no, I didn't know I said please all the time. And now, not only do I see, I say, please all the time, but I notice why. So there's an insight, kind of like maybe psychological insight. And these can be very helpful to people. Um, the problem, the, the, the danger, maybe not the problem, the danger with the psychological insight are um, maybe I can think of two. Uh, one is that um, if, um, because they are, uh, for some people, their psychology of self, their individual, individual, individualized in psychology that defines who they are, is the be all and end all of who they are. They think that the whole sense of who they are and who they're supposed to be in the world and their happiness is tied to their psychology. And so they're constantly psychoanalyzing themselves, constantly kind of rearranging the furniture in the mind. Um, and it, um, and so they don't, uh, and in doing that, they don't take it beyond a psychological level. The, psycho, this, the psychological level that's biographical has to do with things that are unique to you. Another way of saying, talking about the psychological insight is biographical insight. Insight that is, is unique to you. When I was five, my parents did X. Somebody else's parents didn't do that when they were five, so they didn't, ha- you know, that didn't kind of set those conditions into place. And it can be very helpful to realize that when parents did X when I was five, therefore I do Y now. Um, it's something that's unique to you, perhaps. So it's biographical insight. And some people will just stay swimming in that biographical world, the maze of bi- biography, 
autobiography and never really see the way, the way out. And there's a way which people can think that they're always solving some problems, always having some realization. And it, it is something, but it's kind of like you're trapped inside of a box that you never get out of. And um, so, um, so at some point, the practice has to go beyond the biographical or go beyond the psychological. And for some people, that's a very big step to make because the sense of self, the kind of the narcissism or the sense of concern about self is so deeply embedded and so reinforced sometimes by society that um, there's no sense that it doesn't feel safe to step outside or it just seems blank outside of that. Why, why, why would you? It doesn't have anything to do with me. And so, but to step outside of me in the usual way is a very important part of the practice. And for some people, that's where the practice starts becoming frightening. When they realize you have to step out of a normal understanding of who you are. Some people, that's what they're hoping for. They're just so tired of themselves, <laughs> of the usual understanding. But then finally, they get to the edge where maybe they see the possibility of stepping beyond and they pull back. Oh, I don't know if I want that. So, um, <clears throat> so anyway, at some point the practice has to go beyond the psychological. And, um, and then there's a whole, whole series of things, again, that we can start understanding or seeing. Uh, the tradition talks a lot about the, uh, the, uh, an early uh, kind of I don't know if it's always early, but the tradition talks about it being early. An early kind of insight is an understanding about causality, cause and effect. So to see that there's a cause and effect relationship to how things occur to us. That there isn't spontaneous conception, immaculate conception in the mind. It isn't that suddenly you have a thought and just didn't, where did that come from? It's just like, that must have been, you know, spontaneous, miraculous conception, you know, just like, you know, just pop. Everything arises because of causes and conditions. And so you start seeing the, ca- the causal um, connections between things. You notice that you can notice that you have a certain thought and um, your shoulders tighten up a little bit. And you see there's a connection between your body and the experience of your body and certain thoughts you have. And then you might notice also that it goes in the other direction. You notice certain relaxation of the body and with that relaxation, it changes the quality of the mind. Um, so starting to see that there's a cause and effect relationship uh, between things is very important. Um, and when you start seeing that everything is a, a chain of cause and effect, it can also be a little bit frightening or disorienting because if it's all cause and effect, one cause after another, then where am I in that? Where's the self in that? You know, the one I'm supposed to be in charge and be responsible, and here suddenly I just, it's all a series of cause and effect. And it can, so it can be very interesting to kind of have that insight and see. And it's kind of like putting a magnifying glass at our experience. Um, my teacher in Burma, he loved to make the analogy of um, from a distance you might see like a long black line on the sidewalk. It just seems like a solid black line. But if you get really close up, up to it, you see it's a row of ants and it's, there's, and it's segmented. It's not continuous, it's, it's segmented black things. And, um, but they look like, you know, from a distance they seem like a line. Or, or another image is that of if you take a torch and you spin it around in the dark, fast enough, it looks like a um, you know, circle. But you know it's not a circle, it's just that that's the way the eye kind of constructs it because it's going so fast. Um, so normally how we experience things is a little bit is not so accurate we see things uh, more continuity more solidity than is actually there and so as the mindfulness gets deeper we start seeing more the segmented or the, the detailed qualities of how things arise and pass and then we start one of the things we start noticing is the cause and effect relationships between things especially the cause the, uh, between the mind and the body uh, what goes on um, we see the consequences of our intentions consequences of how we speak and what we do and we can see kind of the consequences see the results much more clearly um, and it's um, for some people report that it's not so mysterious anymore what's happening to them because it just seems very clear that things are kind of just kind of following this pattern, the causal nexus 
It doesn't mean that we're the victims of a chain of cause and effect. Um, what it means is that we can actually start engaging that and changing it for in wise ways. So part of the insight, another aspect of insight, or mind, strong mindfulness, is seeing um, what is skillful and what is not. Seeing where the choices are of how we can act. And seeing that some choices are wise and some are not wise. Seeing that if I, you know, do, uh, if I lie and steal and kill and you know, deceive people, that it has certain kind of consequences which are deleterious to my own psychological and spiritual health. If I am a generous or am kind or speak nicely, I speak truthfully, then it has um, beneficial uh, consequences. And so even though it's, everything's cause and effect, there can also be our contribution to that kind of stream of cause and effect. And we can take some responsibility for that stream. And luckily we can, because then you can actually um, uh, take the stream of your life and begin moving it in a direction that's more useful. It's kind of like our life. The unexamined life is a a stream, this momentum going in a certain direction. As we bring the mindfulness to examine it, we can actually take the stream and direct it in a new direction. And um, in directions that are more to our liking, are more appropriate, or more helpful for us. So part of the uh, what's uh, the insight part of the practice is to not only see the cause and effect relationship between things, but see where we have some ability to go in there and move things in, in certain directions. And uh, sometimes we move things slowly. Sometimes you make big big changes, and you just make you know, suddenly. You know, from one day to the next, you can make dramatic differences in how we behave and how we speak and how we see ourselves. And um, sometimes just by noticing, seeing that we can take responsibility or being inspired to take responsibility. I've known people who woke up or somehow in practice and uh, realized that they've spent a lifetime of blaming other people or being, or being a victim and hanging on to the victim role or the, wound, or the idea that I'm suffering, me. And then realizing, wait a minute. I don't have to do that. Where did I get that idea? And they just kind of saw through it and then they didn't, ha- they didn't stop doing it. Isn't that nice? Nice story. Um, the, um, it's sometimes it's like um, um, this, you know, the idea of, of uh, analogy is sometimes, sometimes given of a, of a magic trick. If you see a magician doing a magic, tri- magic trick, no matter, uh, it can be fascinating to watch this amazing trick over and over again. I mean, it's pretty amazing to watch a magician saw someone in half, right? That's pretty good. So, so, you know, it keeps your interest. Or, you know, but then you see the trick, see how the trick is done. And then, you know, once you've seen how the trick is done, you lose interest. Well, that's not so interesting anymore. Recently, my son has a little kid's book, Little Kid's Magazine. And they, for the first time in my life, I learned how you saw someone in half. <laughs> how it's done. They had a diagram of, you know, the, the box. And I had no idea how they did it. But now I know. So if any of you want to come to my house. And <laughs> and um, so, um, so now if I see this, you know, sawing the person in half trick, you know, it's like, it's kind of boring. So the same thing with the mind. You can understand something about how the mind works and suddenly you can be freed from this you know, very quickly. But sometimes a change we make can be very slow and sometimes it's, it can be very wise to set, this, set an intention towards making a change in your life and not expecting it to be overnight, but to set in a, in a direction that uh, will bear fruit and strengthen over time. So just as, for example, um, if you find yourself getting in trouble a lot with your speech, you find your speech is not very helpful to you or to others. Some people make the intention to practice wise speech. And it can be hard to kind of do that overnight, to suddenly kind of change a whole lifetime of patterns of how you speak. But having that intention, setting yourself in that direction and looking for the opportunities, trying to remember as often as you can, studying your speech, and slowly, slowly, over time, your speech might improve more and more and become what we call wise speech or right speech. Um, so then as the mindfulness gets stronger 
another form of insight that can happen, uh, and this is what we call, what I call, uh, insight with a capital I, because these are the, uh, the insights which uh, the Vipassana the traditions put the most emphasis on. These are the core insights. And these are the are insights into things which are considered uh, universal. So they're not biographical, they're not unique to who you are. It's not your own particular psychology and autobiography. But they have to do with things that are universal, it's true for everybody. So it's insight into universal aspects of our life or, of our, or universal aspects of our experience of being a human being. And uh, these are usually called the three characteristics. And they're, they're called uh, the insight into impermanence, the insight into um, unsatisfactoriness, and the insight into uh, not-self. And all three of those need some explaining. Um, the insight into impermanence is um, something that in all, as far as I could tell, all spiritual traditions that I know of, all religions that I know, and all cultures I know, I seem to know on, have some emphasis on impermanence. It's kind of obvious insight. Uh, you know, you can't step in the same stream twice, we learned from ancient Greece. And so it's not unique to Buddhism to, to you know, realize that our life is impermanent and that to live a wise life, you have to have contend with and understand the impermanent life we live. Um, when, it, when the insight into impermanence is, a, is an insight with a capital I, it's not just noticing that people die and we get old or that our cars get old and change. And not the, the obvious things. But it has to do when the mindfulness concentration is very strong. So that the mind no longer has a tendency to settle anywhere or to fixate in anything. So... Um, so, uh, if I'm thirsty, which I am a little bit, I might be thirsty, and then um, um, I might uh, be constantly kind of glancing down at that, wa- at that glass of water, kind of concerned about it, make sure it stays there, make sure none of you take it from me, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, I'm fixated on it somehow. And, um, and so the mind has this kind of fixa- fixation with uh, the glass. Um, in very deep mindfulness practice, when the concentration is strong, the mind uh, doesn't fixate on anything, but actually is very, mind is very fluid, and without fixating on anything, doesn't, 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 in some ways doesn't settle, it doesn't freeze, it doesn't reify anything, it doesn't reify or, or solidify things through our concepts. And because the mind has this kind of very soft, but very penetrating ability to see, what it begins seeing is behind the illusion of fixidity, the illusion of permanence that we often live by, live with. Our moment-to-moment experience of life, in the very kind of precise details, some teachers will talk about kind of the cellular level, the atomic level or something, very deep level, is that all our experience is arising and passing very quickly. Very, very quickly. And... Um, uh, nothing in our experience in deep meditation has any solidity to it or any permanence to it, any constancy to it. It doesn't stay constant, but it's constantly arising and passing. This is very helpful uh, insight. Uh, uh, sometimes it's very obvious that it's helpful. Uh, I've had situations where um, I fall into the illusion, the delusion of permanence. Uh, a common one would be uh, I'm feeling kind of sad or depressed or bummed out. This is it. I'll be this way forever. That's it, you know. This is it. And um, I've had that at home with my kids. You know, where the kids are going through something. And I said, oh no, this is it. <laughs> it's going to be this way forever. You know, they're going to be yelling and screaming, bouncing off the wall. This is the way it is. And um, I remember once when I was falling into the delusion of permanence with my kids, uh, my wife looked at me and said, "We're having one of those days." And then that kind of broke the illusion. I saw the I saw the magic. How the magic was done. And I said, "Oh, it's just one of those days. Tomorrow will be a different day." 
So, you know, that's one form of kind of the delusion of permanence. When you start seeing things as being impermanent, then it can break up that solidity. It can be very helpful. It's helpful sometimes with physical pain because uh, there's a very strong tendency. You know, uh, I don't know what percentage, but a huge percentage of physical pain is psychological in nature. Uh, you know, it has to do with our interpretation of the, of the sensations of the body. Our fe- a lot of it has to do with fears. Um, the more fear a person has, the greater the pain is. The less uh, fear there is, the less pain they feel. And um, so the syndrome, you know, if, uh, you're in pain until you go to the doctor. And the doctor tells you something and then pain goes away. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I don't know all the reasons for that, but some of it has to do with the fact that maybe the fear has been lessened. So um, uh, the, this delusion of permanence is often applied to pain. But if you can get the mind soft and not interpreting or conceptualizing the experience of pain, and you bring the attention very carefully into the pain with tremendous detail, what you'll see is the pain is not solid. The pain is arising and passing. It's in flux. It's a lot of intense vibration. And it's a whole different game to be present for pain if you feel it is uh, arising and passing of vibration than if you see it as something that's solid and permanent there. Um, but one of the very interesting things about seeing everything arising and passing very closely, very, very, in great detail, very, very kind of fine way, is that um, it's very hard to cling to things which are arising and passing. It's kind of like um, if you try to cling to water, like you have, a, you know, you put your hand in a, let's say there's a waterfall, and you put your hand in the waterfall and to grab the waterfall and pull, take it with you. You know, the water just goes out through your fingers and the waterfall doesn't come with you, right? So, or, the, or you try to grab sand, you know, and sand just kind of pours through your hands. Um, so the same way, when, you, when all your experience seems impermanent, then the attempts to grab it, hold on to things which are constantly shifting and changing, are not going to work. And that can be, again, another phase in practice where people get very afraid because we always want to have some place we want to stand or something we want to hold on to something we want to rely on, some sense of self that's permanent and reliable. We, I've spent, you know, some, some, some people have spent, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars on therapy to have a strong sense of self. And, you know, you see all that money disappearing in front of your eyes. You know, I can't find any in there. It's all, it's all rising and passing and disappearing. I can't hold on to it. So, um, you know, it's very frightening and very frustrating um, for a variety of reasons. And, um, but it's very important to learn to relax and let go of the clinging around self or clinging to, to the concepts and the ideas. And so it's, it's harder to cling when we see things as being deeply impermanent. There can be some still that remains, but it's harder. And part of the function of this deep kind of seeing is it allows us to loosen up uh, very, very deeply held clinging, the kind of clinging that's kind of latent, kind of so deep we don't even know why we cling or where it is. And, um, and that, you know, it's part of, the, part of the function of deep Buddhist meditation practice is to get the attention, your awareness, down into that part of the mind that in the West may be sometimes called subconscious or unconscious, latent, the part that's kind of really deeply, you don't normally see how it operates and functions. So the impermanent thing, seeing impermanence is uh, uh, very beneficial for this process. Uh, then sometimes there's the insight into unsatisfactoriness. And this is the idea that if, all thing, if everything is arising and passing, then it's unsatisfactory to take it as a permanent self. Or it's unsatisfactory to cling to it, hold on to it, or depend on it in some absolute way. And the sense that all our experience is unsatisfactory for the purposes of, for the purposes of lasting happiness, permanent happiness, is, um, is considered a very important insight. And it's considered to be a very mature one, a very you know, mature thing, not to kind of put all our eggs in one basket and not to depend on our bank account. You know, my bank account, I've managed to get a good nest egg behind me and I, I know now that's going to make me happy. And, um, you know, I, you know I, I don't expect it's going to, I don't really expect it's going to likely to happen. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be too surprised if I woke, woke up one morning and found that um, all the banks decided to close shop or something, you know, and all the money, I nest egg, you know, just, where is it? It's gone. 
And part of the reason why I, I kind of think it's not completely unlikely is it's, it's, it's happened sometimes in human history. And um, it happened when I was in Burma, where the Burmese government declared overnight that um, much of the currency, the, the, the paper bills they had, were now no longer valid. What? <laughs> I mean, you can't do that. I mean, until then, I thought money is real. Money is like money. You know, money is like real. It's more real than anything, right? I mean, you can depend on money. It has God. We trust we own it, right? <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, it was something that was really, you could count on. And to wake up and be told when you woke up in the morning, oh, by the way, all your bills in your, in your wallet no longer, you know, in the Burmese money is not even as good quality as paper, as uh, toilet paper. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, it wasn't so bad for me because I hadn't, I hadn't uh, converted that much money. But um, uh, part of the reason the government did it was that um, there were Burmese people who didn't trust the banks, which were run by the government. And so they had uh, stored all their money under the mattresses. Uh, and, but, and also they were using it for smuggling. And smuggling was big time in Burma. So they were kind of outside the bank system. So they could, and so they were, part of the rationale was to kind of get those smugglers. And, and, um, and so just, to, just, you know, just, you know, just rather than take all their money away, their ill gained wealth away, you just declare that their money is invalid. <laughs> so, um, so I don't know if you know that'll happen here in America, but you. Um, so the idea of permanence, uh, you're thinking that we can rely on things, Perma- you know, for permanent happiness is ultimately like this. This, this is it. I finally found the right relationship. This person is going to do it. You know, I'm, I'm sure this is the right one. I'll be happy now. For, for, I'll be happy forever. <laughs> The delusion of permanence has set in. And then eventually you learn that you know, a successful relationship is something that's recreated every day. You have to make that new intention, discover it every day. You can't rest on your laurels. And this is how you know, it's fixed and done. Um, so, the, the, um, so, you, uh, so a very important insight is the unsatisfactoriness of all things that in order to provide you with lasting and permanent happiness. It's not a negation of things. It's not a saying that things can provide happiness and well-being in their own way. But you're not going to. It's a very mature thing to not to give ultimate dependence on things. And then one. And one of the things we don't. One of the things we don't give ultimate dependence on is some permanent sense of self. So one of the things that doesn't. The delusion of permanence also applies to self. And uh, I, you know, that somehow I'm the one who continues through time. And, um, uh, or some, some fixed self-concept. And this is a big topic in Buddhism. It's a very important one. Um, but um, this is also one of the important insights. The insight into not-self. Into that nothing in our experience qualifies as a permanent, stable, in-control self. So, with nothing, no, no thing as being ultimately reliable, and no sense of self which is ultimately dependable, what else is there? And what, what else, what the other thing that there is, is there's some part of reality which is not a thing. Um, a thing is a very vague, un-technical word. Um, there's, part, there's a, a dimension of consciousness or dimension of the world or something, it's very hard to talk about, which is unconditioned, which is uncreated. And that unconditioned, uncreated experience is, what the, is the ultimate insight which the mindfulness is trying to go towards. Is can we see or experience that part of life which is unconditioned? And to have a taste or experience of the unconditioned is to have a taste of freedom and liberation. The um, 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 the value, part of the value of seeing the three characteristics, 
is that uh, seeing it very deeply sets the stage for the mind to let go of its clinging in such a profound way that the mind opens up or drops into this unconditioned dimension of life. So, So, with that, that's a good segue to next week's talk, where maybe I'll talk about liberation, since we covered insight today. So, um, do you have any questions or comments or confusions about what I've said? Yes, Rainbow. Just refer to that um, third thing as no self and sometimes not self. Mm -hmm. I just lost it. Yes, sometimes uh, it's called no self and sometimes not self. And the distinction is very important. Though some people will say maybe it's, um, you know, uh, uh, splitting hairs. Um, The idea of no self is the idea, uh, it's often translated, the word anatta, is a Pali word, is often in English translated as no self. and and, and, And it's popularly understood that Buddha, Buddha taught there is no self. The Buddha never said that. What the Buddha said is that um, uh, not-self characterizes the things of the world. The, thing, the, the things, uh, whatever it is, things of the world including you. Uh, that no matter what you can point to, that thing can, can be said accurately to be not-self. In some ultimate permanent way. That's permanently who I am. So the not-self teaching, it should, be, it should be translated as not-self. Because it's always qualifying some things, always describing something which is not self. If you say there's no self, that's a, that's a kind of absolute statement. There is no self. And then you say, well, are you going to pee for me? <laughs> you, know, you, know, you, you, know, you know, I'm the one who pees for myself. And you know, if I'm not self, then... So the, um, and then we get so confused. The whole teaching of no self is so confusing. Uh, and it's not accurate. It's not what the Buddha taught. So I don't know if that makes sense to some of you are even more confused than you were when you came here today. But that's the distinction. Yes? Anatta becomes anatma. Anatma, yes. Anatta becomes anatma. Anatma means no soul. Yes, that's so now that's a very big debate going on that Hinduism or Vedanta believes in soul. Yes. And where Buddhism said no soul. And the question arises if there is no soul, what reincarnates? Because Buddha believed in reincarnation. Right. So how do you answer that question? So um, it might, you know, it's uh, here in the West, uh, the Anatta or Natman is usually translated as. Um, not self or no self, and um, but it might be much more accurate to translate it as no soul. But I think that, um, um, and in fact, Yusilananda, who was a great Burmese teacher who was teaching in Half Moon Bay, uh, he that's the way he translated it, it was no soul. And then you don't get uh, confused with all this Western psychological understanding of self and building up a strong sense of self and you know having a self and all that. Uh, because uh, so soul might be more accurate because. If you look back at what the Buddha was negating, it's probably closer to the concept of our Western concept of soul than our Western concept of self. There's some kind of kernel, absolute, essential kernel that is permanent and ever abiding or something. Um, so the question is, what is it gets uh, reincarnated? If there, um, first of all, there is no. Uh, the Buddha didn't say there's no self. So, um, so. So people will say, if there is no self, then what gets reincarnated? The Buddha didn't say there was no self. So that, that's not an issue for the Buddha. Uh, what he said uh, is that my body cannot be qualified as myself. My feelings, my emotions don't qualify as myself, the, the self, the soul. Um, my eyes are not the soul. My perceptions are not the soul or this core self. Um, my mind is not the self or this, this core self or the soul. My, my intentions, my consciousness. So all these things you can point to, that is not. So what does it get reincarnated? Buddhists don't like to use the word reincarnated. Uh, they talk about rebirth. 
And they say that things that there are, there's a kind of rebirth, which is a kind of a continuity that continues beyond death. And that continuity is um, said to be uh, a continuity of consciousness, even though that consciousness cannot be said to be the self. There is an integrity to that flow of consciousness over several lifetimes, over many lifetimes, infinite lifetimes. And the way that the continuity is sometimes described, if you try to get into the physics of how that continuity happens between lifetimes, is that um, it's a momentum that's got set in motion that continues. So it's like waves in the ocean. If, um, if a uh, big wave gets formed in Japan and gets sent east towards California, uh, you can actually watch the wave move through, and you can say, well, the wave is moving east towards us. But, um, but if you actually look at the um, particles of water in that wave, the part of, no particles are moving across the ocean. What's happening is the particles of water are going up and down, and they're vibrating, and they bump into the ones next to them, and they go up and down. And just like the, the um, wave that they have in stadiums, there's no hands moving across the stadiums, but you look, it looks like motion. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so there, so there is a cause and effect relationship that moves through time. And so, uh, same thing with consciousness, that uh, uh, consciousness is not a core permanent thing, but it's more like a, like a wave, it's a, it's a vibration or a particle that's vibrating, and it's, it's at the spin. Um, so at, when we die, then the consciousness has a certain spin. And then um, somehow it bumps into another consciousness that's just about to get born and then adds that spin to that. It's not a very satisfying explanation. <laughs> to me. But, um, but uh, that's the best I could uh, come up with to try to explain the physics of how Buddhists believe in rebirth without positing that there's some soul that's moving through. So, last question here. You said that it goes to another consciousness, so it means there are two then? The hem- what? You said that after it goes, the consciousness goes to another consciousness, so you add one plus one is two? Something like that, yeah, it's, it's very hard. Um, now, I tried to look into this, and I don't think Buddhism has a very, and I might be wrong about this. So, uh, uh, you know, to hold what I say lightly. But um, the physics or the mechanics of how rebirth happens and how the continuity from one life to another is supposed to happen uh, is not something that's... Uh, uh, the science, Buddhism doesn't have the science behind it. So I can't tell you exactly. No one really knows, uh, as far as I can tell. But, um, but the best way I, I can kind of understand the Buddhist concept of it it's more like this idea of the wave. There's a spin that gets happened. And that consciousness. Consciousness also is impermanent in rising and passing. There's no permanent consciousness. So because the consciousness is not permanent, it's a rising and passing. It's kind of a spin like a particle that's vibrating a certain way. And somehow that spin or that vibration moves, go, uh, uh, goes into a new life. When you, know, when, you die, when you die, then upon the rebirth of that, they say the rebirth of that consciousness, um, but at some point, uh, that um, so what, is it, how, what the mechanisms we don't know. But I'm suggesting it's kind of like what, the moment you die in, in the Theravada tradition, there's a spin in your consciousness. And that's, that spin, that momentum, doesn't just fade away, but it has to go somewhere. It's like an energy. And so that energy somehow is tra- uh, the energy or the spin of that energy is somehow translated or moved over to the next life. Now, is it, is it just because it's bumping up to the new consciousness, which is blank and kind of vibrating a certain way? And that vibration contain, contains a sum total of, the, of your karma. So your, uh, all the intentional actions of your life are stored in that spin and they affect how you're going to be born in the future. Um, so, I, 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 for me, it's not very satisfying, the explanation. Um, and maybe someday there'll be science behind it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a pretty basic uh, teaching in, in classic Buddhism, this idea of rebirth, that there's a rebirth. And the question is, um, 
we often say, you know, you know. So if you get reborn as an earthworm, is it that you, a person, happens to be reborn as an earthworm for a life as an earthworm? Or, as a person now, are you actually the rebirth of an earthworm in your previous life? You're just a reborn earthworm. Who are we? I don't know. The, uh, the, uh, now, uh, in this deep practice of insight, that's the topic of today, of insight practice, uh, for the most part, um, th- th- this issue of rebirth and, and, um, and um, past and future lives is of uh, no interest at all. It doesn't have any role to play. Because in very deep, deep insight, um, well, I shouldn't say that completely, it's completely true. For some people it does. In the, in the, sto- in the biography of the story, the story of the Buddha's life, um, the experience of his enlightenment, uh, the night that he was sitting under the uh, Bodhi tree to, getting enlightened, Part of his experience that led to his enlightenment or built towards it uh, was a memory of past lives. And so you can't really take out the the idea of of rebirth from the stories of of the Buddha's enlightenment because it was such an integral part of that story as we're told, as it's told to us. So it's, it's, but for the most part, the way I was introduced and taught uh, Vipassana practice in Asia, uh, there was never any attempt at all to try to uh, 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 teach or uh, argue uh, about rebirth. Uh, I was taught the Vipassana practice in Asia, really independent of the teachings of rebirth that existed in, in Asian Buddhism. And I've been quite content um, to leave it that way. And when people ask me questions, I'll do my best to try to represent the tradition. But it, it doesn't really interest me that much. Doesn't, uh, I, I, can see that, I see that the practice can function quite well. Uh, without uh, much emphasis on this part of Buddhism. And by saying that, I'm sure, you know, it's going to be, I'm sure I'll get in trouble. <laughs> so, so I hope this was um, understandable enough today and come back next week and we'll do something with liberation. Mm-hmm.